Well, there are several things <clears throat> on my mind that I would like to talk about, but we're going to keep going through Acts. <clears throat> um, we, uh, my podcast, tonight's episode that comes out and the audio that will be out in the morning is an interview with a man named Carl Truman. He's a Presbyterian guy. He wrote this book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's 400 pages, it's a very difficult read, but uh, he has a shorter version coming out in the next year or so. Um, but it's talking about the sexual revolution and how we got to this place as a nation, as a culture, and what's next. Um, the going through how we got to this place is very instructive, um, and hopefully the interview will be helpful. Um, now we're gonna win. It's, it's the YouTube version's up tonight, okay. um, but the audio will be in the morning. Um, the Equality Act, you guys know about the Equality Act? Um, there's a lot of stuff I want to say about that. Maybe if we have time at the end, we can get into that. But um, <clears throat> for now, we're going to do Acts. So why don't I pray? <laughs> I'm going to pray, and then we're, uh, we're going to get started in Acts 26. We're going to cover that whole chapter this evening, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all the good things that you've given us and the ways that you provide for us and protect us each and every moment of every day. We thank you for the breath in our lungs and for the joy that we have and the happiness that you've allotted to us in this life. We ask that we would use the things that you give us to serve you, to serve you faithfully, and to honor you in church and at home and everywhere that we may be. Lord, we ask your blessing on this study tonight, that we would see all the wonderful things that you've preserved for us in your word, and that we would be more like Christ because of the time that we spend studying it together and encouraging one another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Acts 26 is where we'll be, and let me ask you some questions as we uh, get going. In what chapter did Paul get saved in the book of Acts, get converted? Remember what chapter? Mm-hmm. Chapter 9. In what chapter do we see Paul's first real ministry activities? It's his first missionary journey. What, do you remember what chapter we see his first missionary journey? You can flip through Acts and look at headings if you want to cheat. Because <laughs> it's likely that over one of the chapters it says Paul's first missionary journey. And I'll give you a hint. It's after 9. Okay. <laughs> it's after his conversion. Thirteen. Good, good, good. And how many chapters are there in the book of Acts? Twenty-eight. Twenty-eight, okay. And um, we've kind of been in the same event over the last several weeks in the book of Acts, really since chapter 23. When he went to Jerusalem, he was preaching at the temple, and that's when he got arrested. And then he got moved to Caesarea, and we've been in the middle of what we could call the Caesarean imprisonment, or we could call it the Caesarean section of Scripture, uh, of uh, the book of Acts, um, C-section, okay. Uh, the crowd goes wild, there it is. Uh, so since chapter 23, we've been in this stuff. These are the real 50,000 foot view, this is what's been going on in chapters 23, and then now to 26 this evening. But as you consider this, I want to start with an abstract question to get, get the brain moving a little bit. 
we have 16 chapters of Paul's Christian activity. 13, chapter 13 through chapter 28. Count every chapter that's 16 chapters. Out of those 16 chapters, six of them are focused on this back and forth, Paul from ruler to ruler, kind of spinning his wheels, it feels like, nothing really happening. Six out of 16. I mean, you go back to chapter 17 where he was with the Bereans. We have like six verses when he was with the Bereans. <laughs> and then we have six chapters of this. Why do you think God has preserved so much of Paul's story that we see as just frustrating, not really getting anywhere? What do you think is going on with, with that? I think it's helped teach us to persevere, you know, okay. steadfast. Yeah. You know, these things will come as we remove ourselves here shortly. And, and that we are to hold, hold fast to, uh, to our faith. And that's what he's doing all the way through that. To move around. The nice thing about it is that every time he's moved somewhere, it's a new group of people uh, to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Vision and whatever he's been going through, you know, his conversion and stuff. So that's good. I mean, yeah. before one of the uh, rulers, one of the kings, and then he sends him to another one, and uh, and then like one of the unfortunately just read twenty five. You're trying. Just a guess. <laughs> You're persevering. Just a guess. I'm just like. And uh, like it says, that it was when King Agrippa and Bernice showed up. Big fanfare, man. people everywhere, and Paul just licking his lips. He's going to go in there, and mm -hmm. they're going to ask, and he's going to tell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's going to hear it. Jim? Yeah, I've heard some people call this Paul's fourth missionary journey. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the highfalutin missionary journey. He gets to meet all the highfalutin people. Well, yeah, I think those are both both really good perspectives, and. Um, keep your finger here, stick a piece of paper in there, and turn back with me to Matthew 13. You see the verses in that box there. I want us to walk through these. <clears throat> and we're actually going to end up with that verse you just referenced, Rex, about Agrippa and Bernice walking in. But Matthew 13, let's look at verses 31 and 32. Someone read this really long parable of Jesus for us. Matthew 13, verses 31 and 32. Who's got that? Yeah. Joseph, go ahead. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Okay, so I... I want to know what you guys think this means. Not every little detail, and don't drag it out and get strange with it. Uh, but generally speaking, what is Jesus teaching here in this parable? What's the gist of this parable? What's the big idea? A tiny bit of faith can produce a ginormous result. Okay. Okay. Um, that's a really big idea. How about a little less big of an idea? <laughs> Get a little more detailed than that, okay? A little more, a little more detail onto that. Melissa? Jesus' kingdom started small, but it is growing and will continue to grow exponentially until he, well, until he reaches its pinnacle. <laughs> hmm. Uh, Tyler, what would be wrong with 
potentially wrong with that type of view? Uh, it does start small and it does grow exponentially, but it doesn't continue to grow um, <laughs> at the same rate. So it starts small and it grows and it will be persecuted and then he will establish his kingdom on earth after he takes his bride out of the picture and returns with her. Yeah, um, Melissa, you've learned about post-millennialism quite a bit in the last few months. Um, there's, there is a Christian view out there that the kingdom's going to grow and grow and grow and basically take over the world to usher in the second coming of Christ. That, I not I know you weren't. I know. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. We're going to have a, you need to have a meeting with the elders. Uh, bring your copy of the church constitution. And, uh, no, um, the, the view is that cultures and governments will become increasingly Christian leading up to the return of Christ, and the world will become Christianized, and that will usher in the second kingdom. That is one view of this parable, which, of course, we don't teach, um, but we do have brothers and sisters who believe that. But the general idea is that Jesus started with how many guys? Twelve. And one of them was a devil. And then today, you know, you see how God has built his church, right? How Jesus has built his church. It has grown. It started so small, and it has grown because Jesus has been building. And if you just turn a page or two over to chapter 16, Matthew 16, this is what Jesus explicitly said was going to happen. The church would be built. If we want to look at just verses 16 through 18, after Simon Peter's great confession, you are the son of the living God. Oh, I guess we're including that. 16 to 18. Would someone read that for us? Okay, go ahead. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What a promise. What a promise. And we have seen that in world history. But now let's go back to Acts. If you saved your spot, go back to chapter 25. And let's look at what we saw last week. Verse 23. Acts 25. Verse 23. You've got Herod Agrippa, king of Judea, coming in with his sister, queen of Judea. He's king and his sister is queen. Okay, and here they come into the, the, or this place where Paul was. And look at what it says in verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And we find out in our reading today, Paul had chains on. So here comes Agrippa and Bernice with you know, the band playing and all the streamers and things. You can just imagine that type of scene in your head, right? And here they, they come in, and, and why do they get that kind of an interest? Well, because they are rulers, right? They're in charge. They have fame. They have notoriety. And then here comes Paul, and just he's a prisoner in chains. And who's Paul, right? He's just this troublemaker. But this is the great paradox of what God has done in history. The only reason why we know those names, Agrippa and Bernice, is because of Paul. Because Paul, his greatness, has superseded their greatness in world history, hasn't it? 
Uh, this is what God is doing, taking the weak things of the world and shaming the strong and taking the foolish and shaming the wise. Uh, he's growing the kingdom. He's building his church. And we need to uh, see that in these chapters. As we study these final chapters, boy, it just looks like not a lot is getting done, but that mustard seed is growing. That's what's going on. Jesus is building his church. Okay, So let's jump into verses 1 to 8 of chapter 26. Um, real quick overview. In the end of chapter 23 and in 24, you've got Claudius who had, who had Paul there in Jerusalem when there was that dispute between Pharisees and Sadducees. And Claudius ends up sending him to Felix, and he's with Felix for two years. Remember that? Two whole years with Felix and uh, Drusilla. And Felix dies. Festus replaces him. We find out about that in chapter 25. Mark talked that last week. Festus heard the case, and then Paul makes his great appeal to Caesar, which means he's got to go to Rome, which means nothing that's going to happen in Caesarea anymore has any official standing. All right? It's now all going to depend on what happens on trial in Rome. And Agrippa jumps in. We've got Agrippa and Bernice coming in, king of Judea and queen of Judea. They come rolling in. They see Festus. They have a little conversation with Festus. They're catching up on things. Festus says, yeah, I've got this guy Paul here. And Agrippa says, you know, I think I'd like to hear from this guy, Paul. Agrippa, being king of Judea, has a really sharp mind when it comes to Jewish things. He knows the Jewish religion. He knows matters of the law really well. And so these charges brought against Paul, Agrippa, yeah, I'll hear those. I'd like to hear about that. And that's what we're going to see today in chapter 26. So would someone read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 26? Who's got that? Okay, go ahead. Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused of by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? All right, so Paul starts telling his story here. We see at the beginning, the first couple of verses there, the first verse, rather, that there's an authority dynamic there. Paul has a submissive spirit about him throughout all of these trials where he's not walking in and um, you know, looking to take jabs at the rulers. Um, he is respectful of authority. The one time that he spoke out and said something about a... Uh, a ruler being a whitewashed wall, he didn't realize that that man was the ruler, right? And he corrected himself in the moment. So Paul is there with a submissive spirit. He's waiting on Agrippa to give him the signal to say, you can speak. And remember, this isn't even a trial. What's happening right now is not a trial at all. There's nothing official that can come out of this. 
It's Agrippa was in town. Festus said, I got this going on. And Agrippa says, yeah, I just want to hear about it. Let's, let's talk about it. So the, nothing can happen really for Paul one way or the other officially in this situation. And Agrippa being the expert in Jewish stuff as he is, that didn't scare Paul at all. Paul's conscience was very clear that there was nothing that he did that was against the law. And he was very comfortable in entering into this conversation with Agrippa. In fact, he says there in verse 2, he considered himself fortunate. That's the way a couple of different translations translate that. It's the same word for um, well, the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. Same word. So it could say blessed. It probably should say blessed. I don't like that word fortunate. Because we don't believe in luck or fortune, do we? Um, he considers himself blessed to have that opportunity. And he starts by just giving his background, of course, saying, look, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, essentially, and I've got this pedigree. We can think of other places in Scripture, like Philippians 3, where Paul uh, explained his pedigree. Um, basically just saying to Agrippa here, I was a legitimate Jew and I know what I'm talking about as I explain these things to you. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm telling you is with great knowledge of the Jewish religion myself. But he gets to the heart of the matter here about why his fellow countrymen were upset with him and what does he say to Agrippa was the issue. Why were his countrymen mad at him, seeking to kill him and put him on trial? Okay, so resurrection is at the heart of this, right? Um, that would especially aggravate the Sadducees, who didn't believe in a resurrection. Pharisees, on the other hand, saw resurrection as critical. It was critical for their hope. Um, so well, let's see what other phrases we can pick out of here of what would have aggravated the Jews. Okay, yeah. Um, and why isn't he? Why, why is Paul no longer a Pharisee? Why is he something else? Basic, basic answer here. <laughs> it's Wednesday night, but we can give a Sunday school answer. That's okay. So, yeah, he saw fulfillment of the law in Jesus. And that's the rub, isn't it? Paul is pointing to the person of Jesus, the risen Jesus, and he's saying, this is the great hope. This is the fulfillment of the law. And they didn't like that. They love their law. They want to hold tight to their law. And here's Paul going out and preaching a, a gospel apart from works of the law. Very aggravating to his fellow countrymen, isn't it? And so you think back to this promise. He makes reference uh, Verse 6, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. That started all the way back in Genesis with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15. Uh, Abraham's seed would be blessed, that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's seed. There's, there's a threefold promise, the land, the seed, and the blessing. And he's seeing a fulfillment of these things to an extent. There's a big, full conversation on that, but he's seeing a fulfillment of these things in Jesus. And certainly the law has been fulfilled in Jesus. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so uh, by pointing to the resurrected Messiah as the fulfillment of the old covenant, and consequently saying these Jews who still perform their works of the law 
He's saying that their worship is false and true worship now resides in Jesus. He's really aggravating them. He's really bothering them. So much so that they want to kill him. Because if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, that means all those works that are done from the law apart from Christ have no meaning. They're empty. They're actually rebellious acts because they're denying the Lord himself. So this is a big issue, and Paul's laying it out and saying this is what's going on. Now let's look at the second part of Paul's story. It's a bigger section. I would like to read from 9 down through 23. From 9 to 23. And before we do that, I want you to look for elements in Paul's testimony here that are new elements. We have in Acts chapter 9, Paul's conversion, and we hear the story and the details of what happened. In Acts 22, 22 or 24, uh, 22, um, Paul tells his testimony. So there are two stories so far, the story of it actually happening, Paul telling his testimony the first time. Now, this third time that we're hearing the story, there are seven new elements that I count to the story. So see how many you can find as someone reads through this section for us, starting at verse 9 and going down through verse 23. Who can read that for us? a bigger section, but Logan, you're a brave man. Thank you, sir. Go ahead. Verse 9. I myself was convicted that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them all often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen which you have seen me, and to those in which I, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and, and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the, key, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Uh, 21 or 22? 23. <laughs> to this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
All right, thanks for tackling that big section for us. So in verses 9 to 11 there, Paul wraps up his former life by saying clearly, I, I was the persecutor of this church. The church of which he is now a part, he used to persecute. And notice he says there in verse 11, he didn't always try to kill people, did he? He tried to get them to blaspheme. And now as a Christian, he sees that as blasphemy. At that point, he didn't. He was just saying, forsake Jesus. Speak against Jesus. And as, as a Pharisee, he didn't see that as blasphemy. But now, as a Christian, he's looking back. I was trying to get people to blaspheme. He was trying to get them to uh, go back on their faith in him. That was his goal. Of course, he was unsuccessful much of the time. They would rather die, uh, many of them, than forsake Jesus. And in light of, and in light of what he's doing right now, He's in chains before the king of Judea for his testimony in Jesus. It's so crazy to think about where he was. <laughs> he, was he was persecuting them, driving them out to foreign cities. And then now here he is being persecuted for that same name. That's pretty, pretty wild. Um, any thoughts on his pre-conversion life as described here before we get into his conversion story? I don't want to move on if we've got thoughts or questions to share. All right, so from verses 12 to 18, he shares the, his account of what happened when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Did you guys catch any new stuff in there that we didn't get in previous accounts? Um, the, the number seven is very wishy. Some of these things could be lumped into one and other things could be broken down. So we'll just see what we can see. Go ahead, Joseph. I don't know if um, the other accounts mentioned that Jesus specifically spoke to him in the Hebrew language. Good, that's one of them. That is one thing. Yeah, this is the only of the three accounts that says Jesus spoke to him in Hebrew. <laughs> so Jesus speaks Hebrew. Now we know. In heaven, we're all going to speak Hebrew, which means all the knowledge you've acquired about vowels, you don't need to know anymore because Hebrew are just consonants all the way. Uh, Stacy and Melissa. Did he and the other one talk about all of them falling to the ground? There's another one. Yeah, we didn't know in the other accounts that all of them fell, but here we learned that every one of them fell down to the ground uh, when they saw saw the light. Melissa. This is really small, but I don't think he ever said in the other accounts that the light was brighter than the sun. That counts. I counted it. That's a new one. Yeah. <laughs> he he did say in his previous accounts it was a bright light, but this one he goes as far to say brighter than the sun. Well, that gives you an idea. Um, because a light can be bright and not be nearly as bright as the sun. And here he's saying it, it may have been a sunny day, <laughs> and the light from Jesus was brighter than anything else going on uh, in the atmosphere. So pretty amazing. What else? Sure. Yes. So here we find out a lot more of what Jesus told him. Uh, we don't have nearly as much in the uh, other accounts as we have here. It starts in verse, um, really verse 14 and continues through the end of that section. Uh, and all of my other things that I have that are new have to do with what Jesus told him. So one of them being in verse 16... I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness. Uh, we hadn't heard that aspect of the interchange yet until this account. And this, is, this language reflects Old Testament callings of prophets. If you look at Ezekiel when he was called or Jeremiah when he was called as a prophet, 
The language is very similar. You've been set aside. You have been appointed. This is a unilateral act of sovereignty where the person doesn't have a choice. You are the prophet, or in this case, you are an apostle for my sake. So uh, a new element with that, the setting aside for his apostleship. Yes. A lot of his language changed. Yes. Yeah, we see at the end, um, and, and I'm going to say verse 18, because verse 18 has so much in it. But yes, the language of verse 18 is certainly unique. That reflects a lot of understanding that Paul uh, now has. But uh, well, let's see, there, was, there are two other things before we get to verse 18 that were new to this account. He said, I will appear to you. Hmm. I don't think he ever said it. Oh. No. No, and um, let's see, that's in verse 16. I've appeared to you for this purpose. And adding to that, another thing that Jesus said he's doing is sending him people. Verse 17, he's appeared to him, delivering you and causing people to appear before you. <laughs> I'm sending to you Jews and Gentiles. Um, pretty interesting. And there's a phrase in here from a Johnny Cash song, especially if you have the King James Version. When the man comes around, you guys know that song from Johnny Cash? It's hard to kick against the pricks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, most modern versions, I think every version except for King James and New King James says goats, kick against the goats. But uh, this is the only time that we have that phrase. Do we, do we know what that means, to kick against goads or to kick against the pricks? What, what on earth does that mean? Anybody know? Because they hurt. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's an agricultural term, though. What, in agriculture, where does that... Because they just stick to you. What are you talking about, like, little prickly yeah. weed things? No, no, it's not, not it. No, no, it's not it. No. It's like thorns or something more good. No, it's no, not, not goat heads or thorns, no. Mark, you know, kick against the pricks, kick against the goats. So when guys would go out and drive their oxen around to get their oxen to obey, to go one way or the other, they shove something in them. <laughs> they got a prick or a goad that they would they goad the ox with. Goad is also a verb, you know. You, 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 you shove it in there and don't go this way, go that way. You know, poke them on this side, go that way. And a disobedient ox would kick back at that. Hey, that hurt, you know, you kick. And uh, Jesus here is the one driving the ox, Paul being the ox, and he's saying, this is what you're going to do. Quit kicking against the pricks. Uh, Jesus is the sovereign one in charge. So, interesting phrase. Um, I don't know if there's any modern equivalent thinking of our vehicles or anything like that, but you'll just have to do a little bit of research on that. Or I bet there are with horses, Mark. I have that experience. There's, it's called cow prod. It's an electric prod that you move cows with, and I got too close and got kicked in the thigh. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a firsthand account of how that goes. <laughs> so very good. Okay, well, let's look at verse 18 for just a moment. I love the truths that are found here. Um, I'll read it again. 
Jesus telling Paul, this is what you're going to do. This is what's going to happen through you. Jews and Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. (laughs) What an amazing verse. That's just so, so cool. And to hear it from the mouth of the risen Lord. I mean, that's just so amazing. So we want to just pick out a few elements here. The first thing, of course, is people's eyes will be opened. There's a song that we sing, Son of David, the blind won't gain their sight by opening their eyes. I just quoted that to a friend of mine uh, earlier this week. We were talking on the phone, and he was talking about... He's a pastor of a a church that's within a denomination that he shouldn't have any association with, to be honest with you. But he's there, and he's in that church, and he's he's a faithful preacher of the Word. And he's got people in his church who aren't believers, who are just not seeing things clearly in the world today. And we were talking about how there's the spiritual blindness that accompanies the lost condition. And you can't tell people to open their eyes and have them see what's going on. That's not how blind people gain their sight. You guys remember Kathy, who was in our church for a while, blind Kathy? She had her eyes open a lot. Uh, You don't gain your sight by opening your eyes. Uh, Spiritually speaking, you can't just do something to make yourself alive. You can't quicken yourself. But it's a work, a miraculous work that God does spiritually, supernaturally, in the heart and in the mind of a person. And Paul is being told here, your ministry is going to be used by God to open people's eyes. God's going to use you to reach people as an instrument in his hand. And secondly, here we see that there's a repentance element. Their eyes will be opened so that, this is the purpose of their eyes being opened, they will turn from darkness to light, they will turn from the power of Satan to God. They will cease embracing the sin that God hates and cling to the righteousness of Christ and to follow in His ways. Uh, Thirdly, we see forgiveness of sins and an inheritance that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified that they would inherit through the forgiveness of sins in Christ, that they would inherit God, that they would inherit a place in heaven and a place with God. And finally, a certain sanctification. It says, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's a certainty to that sanctification that at the moment of belief, we've seen this in the book of 1 Corinthians, the moment somebody believes, that person positionally is set apart. (laughs) That person is considered holy, innocent, blameless forever because they've been justified and they have been sanctified. Past tense, 1 Corinthians uses that language. So there's a certain sanctification And there's this idea through their repentance and through the life that remains on earth that they would be following after Christ by faith. Just as as clear as Paul is on you are not saved by your works, he's also just as clear as you are saved to works, right? He's equally clear on both. And we see that here in verse 18 through what Jesus told him and commissioning him in his ministry. And I want us to see this in one other place. If you turn forward to Colossians 1, uh, through Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. You'll find Colossians shortly thereafter. And look at the language Paul uses in Colossians 1. and Look at how it reflects what Jesus says 
to him in Acts 26, 18. Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Would someone read that for us, those five, six verses? Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Who's got it? Jerry, go ahead. Most reason also, since the day you heard of it, we have not ceased to pray to you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attainment of all steadfastness and patience, joyously, joyously. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. See what we do, 14? Yeah. Okay. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. We see so many elements that are in verse 18. Right here, forgiveness of sins. I'm just kind of working backwards. The forgiveness of sins being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. Um, to share in the inheritance of the saints. We see a lot of those same themes that Jesus initially told him showing up there in his encouragement to the Colossians, whom he had never met. And so it's a, it's a beautiful encapsulation of the gospel that Paul got from the moment he met Jesus, the first moment he met Jesus, that has been the theme of his ministry throughout, continued to be the theme of his ministry. Um, out of all the things that Paul could have said to Agrippa, he chooses to go back and say, this is what Jesus called me to do. And then if you look at the next couple verses here in Acts 26, um, verse 20, this was my mission to go throughout Damascus, then Jerusalem, then all Judea, to the Gentiles, that they should what? Repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That was his goal. That was the, the drumbeat of his ministry. Thoughts or questions on that? It's a good ministry to have, isn't it? <laughs> it's one that we all share in. Well, when it says deeds, um, just kind of interesting because I almost feel like he's kind of wanting to refer to like the works they're doing, like those deeds, but don't do those deeds like that, but actually have deeds that mm -hmm. are good for Yeah, hands. Yeah, thinking back to yet to the Jews who are persecuting him, um, what was it back in, let's see, verse um, five? No, not five. Seven? Seven. Um, that his countrymen of the 12 tribes, they hope to attain to the promise. They earnestly worship night and day, it says. <laughs> They're earnestly worshiping. They've got deeds, don't they? They're earnestly worshiping. They're striving after something. Totally missing the fulfillment in Christ. And so their worship is false. And so Paul is saying his message was turn to Christ in whom we find the perfect fulfillment and then perform the deeds in keeping with that repentance, turning to Christ. The true deeds, if you think back to Ephesians 2.10, the deeds that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. And then next verse, he jumps right in, that we would walk in the works that God has prepared for us. 
So again, very just as clear on you were saved to works as he is saying you are, you are not saved by your works. Equally clear. You're not saved by your works, but you were saved to these works that God has for you in keeping with repentance by faith in Christ. certain preconceived notions that they would not let go of. That just rooted in pride. That was it. And Paul saw his, the fulfillment of his ministry or the going forward in his ministry as a matter of obedience. You see that in verse 19. He tells King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. This was a matter of obedience for Paul to go forward in the mission that God had given him to preach repentance and to preach faith in Christ. He says in verse 23, again, that message that he's preaching, what's that message? That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Proclaiming light. Again, Colossians 1, transferred from darkness into light. God has qualified you to share with the inheritance of the saints in light. It's, it's the theme of the gospel that you're going from darkness, from sin, into light, into righteousness, into truth. And all of that is found in Christ. The resurrection, of course, is central to all of this. Paul sees the resurrection as being uh, the absolute pinnacle of all history that Jesus rose from the dead. And so you, you see it in all these things that he's saying to Agrippa. He keeps coming back to that fact. And he says that this is what the prophets and, and Moses said was going to happen. Verse 22. I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. This gospel message. And the Jews tried to kill him, the Jews who supposedly love the law and the prophets. They tried to kill Paul for this message because they did not understand the fulfillment in Christ. The great sad irony there. And I want us to see Isaiah, what Isaiah says of Jesus in this regard. Go back to Isaiah 49 with me. As we think of Jesus being the fulfillment of what God is doing in the world, the fulfillment of the law, and light coming into the world, both for Jews and Gentiles, you, you can see it so clearly here in Isaiah 49. That Jesus came to fulfill the law and bring light to the whole world. If they loved Isaiah with a submissive, humble heart, they would have seen it. Here it is, verses 5 to 7. Who can read it? Isaiah 49, 5 to 7. Okay. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel may be, or might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord. Salvation may reach you to, may reach to the end of the earth. 
Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its holy one, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes, princes will also bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, faithful, the Holy One in Israel, who has chosen. Alright. The Lord says to me, back at verse 5, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. We see this as individual Jew, someone who is born of a woman. To be a light to the nations. It's too small of a thing in verse 6 that you should just bring back Israel. Wow, that seems like a really big thing. <laughs> Especially to a Jew, right? Uh, oh, that's a big thing. The whole nation would turn back in humility. That's too small of a thing. I'll make you a light to the nations, to the whole world, a light to the nations. And then goes on to say at the end of verse 7, and you know what? That includes kings and princes. They are all going to bow the knee. So here we see a messianic prophecy about the kingdom to be introduced through Jesus, that mustard seed. That's growing and growing and growing. And it's growing despite the opposition that we're seeing in the book of Acts and despite growing opposition through the ages that we still face today. It's still growing the way God wants it to grow. And in the end, every knee will bow. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to make up this beautiful church that God is building. It's a really cool thing, isn't it? A really exciting thing. And Paul gets it. Paul's seeing, he sees that going on in the first century. This is 2,000 years ago, people. And Paul sees it, and he gets it. And he's trying to communicate that to Agrippa, because remember, Agrippa was really studied in the law. Agrippa was, was sharp on Jewish studies. He would, have, he would have gotten a PhD in Jewish studies. He's the king of Judea. He knows all about it. And so Paul is here trying to reason with this king. And let's look at the final verses here of Acts 26. And see where the conversation goes and how it all ends. Someone read uh, verses 24 to the end, please. Acts 26, 24 to 32. Who's got it? Acts 26, 24 to 32. Okay, thanks. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving me mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I wish... I would wish to God that whether in a short time or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's wrap this up. Um, I want you to see from the get-go, in verses 24 and uh, 25, you see in verse 24 a common response to the gospel, which is mocking. Festus saying, you're crazy, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
you're over there, blah, 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 Jesus, yada, 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 you're crazy. <laughs> um, that's not what's going on. This, you know, this whole idea of there's a Messiah and the kingdom is here and it's growing and people are being transferred into light. You're crazy. You, you have uh, become so in the clouds with all your learning that you're just speaking nonsense. Just mocking, scoffing is what he's doing. That's a very common response to the gospel, isn't it? You're a crazy person. But here's a not-so-common response to mocking, which is Paul's confidence. Look at this. Verse 25. Paul didn't respond with, no, you're crazy. <laughs> That's not what he said. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, so being respectful. But I am speaking true and rational or sobering words. He's just confident in what he's saying. He's standing on the word of God. Everything that he's saying is backed by the law and the prophets. It's backed by his testimony of seeing the risen Christ. He's saying to Festus, I'm recounting true events. I am properly handling the scriptures. And he's saying this, of course, in front of Agrippa. Does Festus know about Judaism very much? No. Festus is a worldly guy. Agrippa is the, the Jew scholar. Festus is the worldly guy. And remember when Paul got the Sadducees and Pharisees to fight each other with, by bringing up the resurrection? I wonder if he's maybe doing that a little bit with these two guys. And he's like, you know, the prophets talk about this, right, Agrippa? You know, and here's Festus. And he's starting something a little bit there. Um, and he's seeing if Agrippa would speak from conviction on this issue because he's saying, Agrippa, you're a reasonable guy, right? Don't you see this? Don't you understand what I'm saying? I love that he says in um, verse 27, you believe the prophets, right? I know that you do. Stand up in front of this Festus guy and be a man about this. <laughs> if you really believe in this stuff, say it. Because I'm being very reasonable with what I'm, what I'm putting forth. Well, Agrippa wasn't going to play the Christian. There are different ways that this verse reads. You've got the New American Standard, don't you, Stacy? So in verse 28, the way that it read was a statement. In a short time, you're going to make me become a Christian. You're, you're persuading me to be a Christian. Anybody got the NIV? Rex, do you have your NIV with you? Yeah, I do. Read verse 28 in yours. <clears throat> then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Okay, you see the different flavor of that? In one, it's saying, In a short time you will make me a Christian, period. And the other one is saying... You really think in a short time you're going to make me a Christian? <laughs> so you got two different sentiments. And it does seem as though the NIV and the ESV has that type of uh, flavor too. It's in the form of a question. It does seem that that is probably the most accurate where Agrippa's looking at Paul and saying, you really think you're going to get me on your team right now? You've been here three minutes. <laughs> uh, you really think I'm going to stand up and say with, with you in front of Festus, oh yeah, Christianity's right. No, I'm not going to do that. Kind of the same kind. Sure. Yeah. Even though it says it as a statement, it kind of like uh, it's kind of like sarcastic. Sarcastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's just in our English. When it gets trans translated into English, it can kind of read different ways. You know, um, kind of like when Pilate said to Jesus, "What is truth?" And we we honestly, at the end of the day, don't really know what was going on in his mind when he asked that question. There are lots of different ways to interpret that. Is that a sincere question? Is that a mocking question? You know, where, where, what is that? But kind of the same thing going on here, but it seems like Agrippa's saying, I'm not going to play the Christian with you. 
Jim. Go ahead. <laughs> Jim. The, the new change name says you almost persuade me. Right. Uh, yeah. And, uh, that's kind of the same idea. Almost, yeah. you know, close, Paul, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because at the end of the day, no matter how we read it, the result's the same. Yeah. Agrippa's saying, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> that's, that's the end result of this. And so, Paul, his response, and I love Paul's godly view on this and his heart. And he says, Well, whether it's a short time or a long time, my desire, my hope, is that not only you, but that all who hear me might become Christians, essentially, as I am. With the exception of these chains. And you can just imagine he's pointing to the chains, you know, with these chains that are on my shackle. So his hope is for godly expansion, for the kingdom to grow, and for it to grow in peace. That Christians wouldn't be chained up anymore, but that there'd be great conversions without persecution of the church. That's a great and godly desire. And there at the end, you've got this private conversation where Agrippa says to Festus, you know... Yeah, he hasn't done anything wrong. Agrippa's the expert on the law. He hasn't done anything wrong. Um, and if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could probably just let him go right now. But because he appealed to Caesar, that changed the game. Everything is going to happen in Rome. This whole conversation was unofficial. <laughs> it was just a conversation. So, does that statement sting? Or how do you, how do you respond to that statement? If, it, if he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, we'd probably let him go. I think our flesh is inclined to think so, but I mean, that's ultimately how God wanted it to happen. I mean, that's how he's taking it up. Yeah, there you go. That's it. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, they'd have probably killed him already. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yes, and so... Um, even though we read those words, it's like, ooh, salt in the wound, right? Because... Uh, we want to see Paul get out and for Acts to continue to chapter 29, chapter 30, and on and on and on. Um, we do see that this is God's good will. Ephesians 1.11, God who works all things together according to his will. All things according to his will. Not his and yours as you supplement his will. <laughs> he works all things together according to his will alone. So um, you see that conversation and hear a couple depraved individuals who have not bowed the knee to Jesus and they're, they're chirping a little bit. Eh, whatever. You know, don't let it sting. This is God in control getting Paul to Rome just as God wanted to do. So be confident in that, okay? Any final thoughts or questions on this chapter? Okay, I know a little fast, so thanks for chugging along with me there. Okay, well, good. Any thoughts or questions, generally speaking? Uh, well, it's probably a stupid question, but Agrippa is a Jew, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because I was confused, like, which one was, like, the world one we just spoke about, like, Yeah, Herod Agrippa uh, certainly presented himself as a Jew. Now, if we were to take Paul's definition of um, true Jews aren't those who are outwardly Jews, but those who are Jews inwardly, oh, Romans yeah. 2, right? <laughs> uh, then we recognize that this wasn't a humble man who was seeking to serve Yahweh. But we see Paul, you know, saying, hey, you believe the prophets, right? Because that was what he lived as far as saying he was. 